You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host, joined around the table with folks from Go Wild and Gunbroker, and we are talking all things NFA and suppressors today, which means we are talking all things inefficient and un-American. Need um, funds allocated. <laughs> Need funds, yes, especially when it comes to the other NFA, the National Firearms Act of 1934. This is my high blood pressure episode because this this particular topic, especially the NFA, just drives me nuts. I think it drives everybody nuts, except for the folks that are in West Virginia working for the NFA. Yeah, the, the only gun owners who shouldn't be completely irate about the NFA are those who just don't know what the NFA actually says <laughs> mm-hmm, does. Exactly. So if you're one of those people, by the end of this episode, you will be pissed off. And Mad if that's the case, hell, we yes. have done our jobs, right? Yeah. So the to, to back it all up, you know, when, when the first suppressors come out, uh, with Hiram Percy Maxim in the early 1900s, uh, suppressors were exactly what they should be today. Mail order items, things that you can buy off the shelf in a store, things you can make them at home if you had the ability to do that. Uh, there were no regulations on them whatsoever, um, just as there were no regulations on machine guns and short-barreled rifles and short-barreled shotguns and, and all that stuff. Um, but unfortunately, all of that changes uh, in 1934. So to, to set the stage for this, we are in the middle of the worst economic crisis uh, in American history. We are thick in the Great Depression in 1934, and the government comes along and kicks us when we're down and adds more restrictions to our machine guns and our suppressors. I mean, just you, you talk about the Dust Bowl being bad, man. The NFA is worse. Right? They want, and they wanted to have they wanted to have handguns on the list as well originally. Yes, which can you imagine having to having to you know buy a tax stamp and wait you know nine months to a year to buy a handgun? And their reason for spinning up the NFA was mostly the mob, right? The publicly stated reason. But keep in mind, <laughs> when prohibition ended, the gangster era kind of ended along with it. Um, there are conspiracy theorists who point out that the Treasury Department had a whole lot of agents employed when Prohibition ended, suddenly with nothing else to do. So, you know, there have been, many a lawyer have argued that the NFA is a revenue-generating tax, which by definition is an illegal tax. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can you can look at a thousand different reasons why it came to be, but um, what irritates me most about it is that it came down to one moonshiner who skipped his court date is pretty much the reason we have the NFA. Which uh, is a very interesting... Yep. T- touch on that because I think we'll that's go super something, quick. Yeah, yeah, it's something that I think a lot of people are not aware of. So, if if you really want to get into it, you want to look up the United States versus Miller, 
Uh, George Miller, I believe. Yeah, I think so. George Miller was a moonshiner um, in, I think, Louisiana. Um, the treasure agents went out to raid his still and found out that it had already been busted up, hadn't been operating. It was obviously not a crime. But when they were searching his truck, they found a shotgun with a barrel of less than 18, uh, 16 inches. With, or no, sorry, 18 on shotgun, yeah. 18 inches. 16 on rifle. Which yeah. is now a new, newly passed law. It's now a short-barreled shotgun and illegal. So arrested, went to court, went before the judge. Um, the United States and the arguments they made are just mind boggling today, made the case that it was a constitutional law because the second amendment only protects military style weapons of which a sawed off shotgun was not a military style weapon. Well, the judge was a world war one veteran and, um, or uh, yeah, world war one veteran and certainly remembers the trench shotguns went, no, a shotgun is very much a combat shotgun through the case out. Took it to the next level, appealed, the uh, state or the government appealed it again, went before the judge, made the same argument that the Second Amendment only protects things like we're in the 1920s, so protects things like, um, you know, 1903 Springfields and, you know, whatever the other munitions are that the military has. I think, again, that's the argument that just melts my brain. Again, judge sided with it, shotgun's military weapon, throws it out. Well, now we get to the Supreme Court, and you have to understand the Supreme Court's not like a regular court where you just walk in with a printed out document and call it good. Um, you have to have, you know, your your case printed out in perfect bound in a, in a very expensive book format. Um, up to this point, you know, this is a, I mean, it's a moonshiner. He's not a rich guy. Once he got out of court the first time, disappeared. You know, it was like, I, I'm off, I'm out of here. Um, the attorney really only c- carried the case on because he knew the constitutional ramifications for it. But he ain't getting paid. And now we're to the point that he's got a close-up shop, go to D.C. for a week, because just because you're scheduled for Tuesday on the docket doesn't mean you're going to get heard Tuesday on the docket. So you're going to be there for at least a week. you got to pay to have all these printed. you got to have all these copies. And he's like, you know what? It ain't worth the price to me. This is such an obvious case. I don't even need to be there. Well, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, goes to the Supreme Court. The government goes up there and, again, makes their case that that the Second Amendment only protects military-style weapons. And you look at the Supreme Court. No veterans, no military service, no experience. And they went, well, the government says it must be true, and nobody's here to argue it, so therefore we find the National Firearms Act to be constitutional because the moonshiner skipped out on his legal bill and wouldn't do it. But just think about that argument. That the government's position was that the only thing protected by the Second Amendment was military weapons. So your deer rifle, not protected. A 240 Bravo belt fed? Game on! It, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about. And also, now, every standard military weapon, civilians are not allowed to have. So it's almost the opposite of... Well, that's just it. The government these days, you know, that's a, a, a weapon of war. Yep. It's a military rifle. Uh, you know, so it's it's a complete opposite shift. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a... a a segment of our community that screams for a case to come up to, to retry Miller. I mean, you know, we've seen Roe v. Wade revisited in past years. Several other standing cases have been revisited. The problem is, I think, in 2023, 24, 25, whatever, going into the court and trying to get machine guns legalized is probably going to be a hard political sell. Suppressors, on the other hand, should be the easiest thing since sliced bread. Um, and it's that's a public where, health issue for Pete's sake. And that's where I think Bruin is such a yes. huge help to us. You know, the, that Supreme Court decision that mm-hmm. came out, was that earlier this year or was it last it year? It was last year, I think. Last year, you know, uh, it's got to be precedent for it. And, then, you know, okay, yeah, the NFA is 90-some years old at this point, but it's certainly a lot younger than our country, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there were no restrictions like that historically. Um, and so that could pave the way for uh, all sorts of 
throwing things out. It's already starting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, you would think it would be very easy to do that for suppressors. Yeah, that one, and I think the, uh, I forget the exact case name, but basically uh, the, the Firearms uh, Regulatory Accountability Commission, FRAC, who's mm -hmm. brought the uh, the pistol stabilizing brace lawsuits forward. Yeah. Um, the, if that if that pans out the way it looks like, then SBRs might be challenged as well. God, Which, awesome. again, if you think about short barrel rifle sh shotguns, it's such an arbitrary thing. Oh, yeah. That at 18.1 inches, this is a perfectly safe shotgun. But, oh, 17 inches, 17.9 inches, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weapon of terror. So you're saying SBR is being challenged, meaning that right now they're an NFA item. And you're saying that you think there's a chance they might not be. There's a... Th it's many steps from here, but the, the pistol stabilizing brace is certainly bringing into question the entire SBS, SBR regulation. Mm -hmm. um, not just the constitutionality of it, but does it even make sense? Does it work? Is it effective? Is it just an antiquated, stupid law that needs to go away? Depending on how that court case goes, that could be the first step toward that becoming a reality. Again, it's, it's political. You're taking a firearm and deregulating it, which is a you know, monumental task in this day and age, but, but the courts are not a hundred percent, but the courts are starting to align with, with what we'd want them to, you know, basically ruling the way we want them to. And Bruin's been a big foundational piece of setting that into play. So, yeah, you know, and, and one of the things we've talked about, uh, we talked about briefly in, in our previous episode as well. And, you know, there's, it's all about taxes. It's all about money. Right. Um, and so to buy a suppressor, it comes with a $200 uh, tax stamp. And that's, unfortunately, it's $200 for every suppressor you buy. It's mm -hmm. not a one and done. Um, and interestingly enough, even though the government loves to to raise the rates on things and, and, and raise the percentages on, on different things, one thing that has not changed since it was introduced in 1934 is the cost of a tax stamp. Yeah. Now today, you know, I'm not going to say $200 is chump change, you know, certainly not. Uh, you know, 200 bucks is a, a good bit of money that I would love to spend on something else, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, so it, it's not an insignificant sum in 2023, but in 1934, $200 is an astronomical mm -hmm. amount of money. And they chose $200 because it was very close to the price of a Thompson submachine gun. And so you are putting a 100% tax on that object. Technically 200 because you're probably going to have to have a tax because it's full auto and a tax as a SBR. Uh, you know, mm. Never mind. I'm thinking that backwards. I'm sorry. A, a two. It's not a two. Uh, stand yeah. No. Not never a two. Stand. No. Yeah. No. no. Coffee, Alan. Yeah. Coffee. No More kidding. coffee. <laughs> Any coffee. Any, Any coffee. coffee. Yeah. Uh, but so yeah. I mean that it, that is an astronomical sum. I mean you know you want to put something out of reach. You, basically, you're making something de facto illegal mm -hmm. just by someone not being able to afford it. It's the same thing today, like with you look looking at full auto machine guns. Are they legal to own? Absolutely. Are they insanely expensive? Definitely. If you want to find one, should you go to gunbroker.com and get one? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, yeah, it all comes down to money, and mm -hmm. and that's one of the big issues. And and then of course the wait time. You know, nine months to a year. I got really lucky three years ago. I got mine back in less than six. Um, it would be interesting. Historically, I don't know what the wait time was, you know, like back in the 30s and 40s. I mean, the volume was nothing. I mean, the, the, they right. were largely for 
probably the first 20 or 30 years after the NFA, I would say the majority of suppressors and machine guns were probably purchased by actual trusts and companies for security forces, union busting, whatever you might want to say. I don't think mm-hmm. there was a ton of civilian um, purchasing. It really wasn't until the economy got to the point where $200 became less of a burden. Really, right. As the, as the, <laughs> frankly, the money's become more worthless as $200 is, you know, easier to accept in. Um, that's really where the boom kicked in. And then <sighs> 10 years ago, maybe when, when did the big boom happen in our industry? It's probably not even 10 years ago. It yeah. suddenly went from being a niche item that like nobody really had. Blackout, right? Oh, uh, it probably drove, probably drove a big part of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, that makes sense. So, absolutely. Um, you know, and now you've got so many companies doing it. You've got, um, tons of options out there. Um, as we were talking earlier, if you walk into a shop and you find a rifle that doesn't have a factory threaded barrel, you're kind of like, eh, I yeah. don't know if I want to buy this one. Um, but it's just there shouldn't. I mean, if you still want to keep an NFA registry, I'm opposed. But get aware, get rid of the wait time. These should be over the counter devices. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at people who shoot frequently, you know, the, the, it's a terrible game we joked about. But it, you know, you go to NRA or whatever, play count the hearing aids, mm-hmm. and you get double points if they if it's on somebody under 50 because it's just it is what it is. You hunt, you damage your hearing. It it it's just part of what we do. Well, that was the joke. It was the the NRA salute. Why? Yeah. So <laughs> suppressors take that out of the equation. The number one reason law enforcement officers have to retire medically are back injuries from just all the gear they carry. Number two, those hearing loss from discharging an unsuppressed firearm. Uh, it's there's no legitimate reason to keep suppressors as regulated as they are. The reason they used in the 20s when they were writing the NFA um, was a, was for poachers. Um, you know, I hesitate saying this out loud because you know we do have some 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 game wardens in the vicinity, but I don't really know of a game warden who probably thinks that's really accurate because again they they're quieter they're not silent we also have these lovely little things called bows and arrows Mm -hmm. which are really quiet so um they look they need an excuse Mm -hmm. Uh, at the end of the day it was an attempt to to deter or at least disincentivize people from buying firearms um they, they again they tried it with handguns and that one the court found unconstitutional because it was essentially banning a handgun Whereas you weren't banning shotguns, just restricting certain ones. You weren't banning rifles, just restricting certain ones. And even though, thanks to the NFA, this is technically now a firearm, at that time you weren't banning a firearm because it's only a suppressor. So it's the NFA is infuriating because it is such a jumble of just complete contradictions where, again, at one point it only covers military firearms. At other point, you know, fire, military firearms are bad. At some points it is a firearm, and sometimes it's not a firearm. It, it makes no sense. It's a jumble. It's a poorly written piece of legislation. It's a bad, bad regulatory pro- uh, project. And, yeah, you want to talk about your soapbox issue. I already joked I'm going to be banging my shoe on the table here in a minute. But <laughs> it's, it's just stupid to keep suppressors on the NFA. There's that in a nutshell. That's my case. Yeah. It's stupid. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> from my perspective, you're talking about taking back money that the government has now gotten used to making. What mm. what does that dollar amount look like? Uh, stupid. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's 800 bucks sitting on the table right here, just yeah. from yeah. from me. You know, Which, I, to me, that's the biggest hurdle. Yeah. So I, 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 oh, absolutely. Trying to take that back from them. I don't have the numbers in front of me as far as what suppressor sales were last year overall. NSSF will, you know, publishes that as part of their their overall data. It's still not, it's not dramatic. It's really, it's really not. I mean, to us, it's going to be a big number. It's, you know, certainly in the millions. But, to, you know, to the Department of the Treasury, 
I mean, they're, pro- they're probably going to make more taxing the guy who just won the Powerball in California than they probably will make off um, NFA taxes this year. Just just a, get a guess. I, I could be totally wrong on that, but that's my gut take. Flip side um, to that, though, is that even though it may be a very small amount of money, the government doesn't want to give up that's any amount of money. No arguments there. They came after me for $500 <laughs> on my taxes this year. That, that I, I figured it out. That funded the government for one-sixteenth of a second. But they wanted their $500. So The, the biggest thing is it's an easily controllable choke point for, for the government. Mm-hmm. If, if you remember, oh, I think it was toward the end of the Obama administration, maybe the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a big move through Congress to deregulate suppressors. Um, the problem is the can companies got a little cocky about it, kind of torpedoed themselves a little bit, but... Um, it had good traction. Um, it was basically to move them off of a registry and treat them like regular firearms. Mm-hmm. So you'd still need a 4473. You'd still need the background check. Depending what state you live in, you might have a five-day waiting period. But there was no $200 tax. There was no year-long wait. There was no fingerprints, all this other junk that goes along with it. Um, then the administration changed, and we want to get tough on guns. We want to show how hard we're fighting against gun violence. So we're going to turn the faucet off on the NFA. But the previous administration had added additional examiners. They'd brought in temporary workers to help get that wait time down from a year. Mm-hmm. To your point, we were down in the three-month range at some points, which was staggeringly fast. And then suddenly all the temp workers went away. All the overtime was no longer approved. Other projects came into place, and we were back up at one point to almost a 14- or 15-month wait mm-hmm. on these things. So it's a real easy control valve for the government to regulate, really, the firearms industry, have a political win, we're keeping yeah. more machine mm-hmm. guns off the street yeah, because no, that's a problem. You're keeping metal tubes <laughs> off a street, you know? Yeah. And and the paperwork in and of itself really is not that much more no. involved than what a 4473 is to, to buy a firearm. I mean, you're still running a background check. You know, you're still doing all that basic information. Yet, for some reason, because we threw in fingerprint cards and a photo, now it's taking nine months. Well, to and do it, you're also you know? adding cost. I mean, because uh, they're all e fingerprints these days. So you know, if you go through a place like a silencer shop or somewhere that does the e kiosk, it's really mm-hmm. easy. Um, like UPS stores will do e fingerprints, which the nice thing there is you pay one time and it's permanent. They keep right. them on record. Uh, but you're still, I mean, I would say probably an additional fifty to hundred dollars for getting your prints done, getting your mug shots taken. The infuriating thing is you have to do it every time. Like like um, a friend of mine did four cans at one time. So you'd think, okay, if you bought four guns, you could put them on one forty-four seventy-three. No. Four separate, four separate mm-hmm. forms, four separate mug shots, four separate sets of fingerprints, four separate checks. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous because you know your fingerprints change each time, right? You know, so if if there is an organization, a security organization, uh, private military type stuff, and they are buying thirty, they're literally thirty mm-hmm. checks. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if you go to sell sell these, if you own one and you sell them, you still have to, whoever's buying it from you also has to go through that same process. So so yeah. not only does it get taxed initially, it gets taxed every time down the line. Yes, yeah, that's a the great same amount. point. Yeah. Yep, that's a great It's very point. difficult to sell a silencer um, privately. You pretty much have to go through an SOT. And, and beyond just selling it, though, if you've done it, like Dan, you were talking about you bought yours on a Form 4 as a private citizen, not through a trust, which certainly has benefits, but... I have my first can I bought that way as well. And, you know, I've jokingly told my wife that should I die, I go throw in a lake. Of course, we wouldn't do that. That would be illegal. <laughs> That's just a joke. But Our um, lawyers said that that was a joke. <laughs> 
uh, you know, if she was going to take possession of it after my death, it has to be transferred to her and it's going to be taxed. Um, that's the benefit of a trust. She's not as a beneficiary on my trust, so she'll take possession without having to do the tax stamp. But yeah, even so, if you wanted to leave it to your your son or or a nephew or whatever, it's a transfer. It's a it, it sits in limbo in some dealer shop for however long, and it's two hundred dollars. But you can put anyone on your trust. Doesn't have to just be family members, you know. As long so. as they're legal, own a firearm. Right. Yeah. You can buy a gun. You can buy a suppressor. You can you can own all that. So. So the NFA really. It had this action in the 30s for suppressors, machine gun sets, sort of stuff. And the NFA is part of the ATF. Yeah, the NFA is just an act. It's the National Firearms Act. Yeah, so it's, it's the a, law. Yeah, it's the law that the ATF enforces. So it's not its own department within the no. ATF. Okay. I mean, the, the technical branch, I believe, is the one who does the no, – uh, I'm sorry, it's the examiner's branch. What's the one out of West Virginia that handles all this stuff? What I don't called? know. I just know that they're in the, Martinsburg, West Virginia. Yeah. There, there's a division that does all the processing of the paperwork and the inspections and whatnot. But the, the NFA itself is the act. It's like the uh, Clean Waters Act or the Equal Rights Act or you know whatever that might be. It's, it's just the, the legislation that put all these rules into effect. So there weren't really any changes – Major changes. I imagine, like the like the um, the uh, pistol stocks we were talking about, there weren't really any major changes until the '80s, and that was the last time there was a big, huge revision, right? Sixty-eight. Yeah. What it, happened in '68? So, so 1934 is the National Firearms Act. 1968 is the Gun Control Act, and that does away with mail order firearms. Now, yeah, okay, you can still buy a gun through the mail, but it goes to your dealer, right? You know, uh, until 1968, you buy a gun out of the back of, you know, American Rifle Magazine, have it sent right to your front door, no questions asked. Mm. Um, but that's one of the things that changes in 1968. And, of course, that's driven by the death of uh, you know, Robert Kennedy and then JFK and Martin Luther King and um, because uh, some of those guns were purchased through the mail and, and sent directly So were there to the age limits before then? Well, as far as you can't be under 18 and have a pistol or... Probably local, but as far as at a national level, no. Yeah. Um, really, and, and even GCA 68 didn't impact the NFA. No. The, the one that had some impact would be the next big change, which was the Gun Control Act of 86. Right. The which, Hughes Amendment. Yep, the Hughes Amendment, which essentially says no new machine guns can be manufactured for civilians. So that's why you'll see things that are always talk about having either a, a post or a law letter. So if you want to, like an, uh, um, a Glock 18 was developed after 1986. So if you want to have one, the only person that can have them are either law enforcement or government. Or if you are a dealer, an SOT dealer, and you have a letter that says, I have one of these as a sample as I try to sell them to. Um, but as far as civilian ownership, that's almost impossible. So that's what, that, that basically created a limited pool. And as we remember from Economics 101, supply and demand, the supply is now limited. They're not adding to that pool ever. Things are going to break and eventually die a mechanical death. So that pool's getting smaller. So the prices are, are being driven up and up and up. Um, what it has also done has completely stymied innovation and invention and advancement in the automatic firearm space because the only people now really who have a dog in that fight are going to be the military armories or the direct contractors like a SIG or an FN. So you're no longer going to have a you know John Garand or a, a you know Colonel Thompson sitting at home developing his new uh, his new whiz bang machine gun invention to try and sell because he can't. 
Yeah. Yeah. When you've got a limited market, it just, it screws everything up, you know. So the Gun Control Act, the one in the 80s, that's a new act, but then the NFA is just amended to say, okay, now machine guns are a class three. Uh, machine guns were were added into the NFA in 1934. Really, all the Hughes Amendment did was say that the pool of guns that are regulated by the NFA can never get any bigger. You mm. can't add new products into it. Right. So again, it didn't really modify the National Firearms Act at all. Right. So basically, basically what it did was, you know, in in 1985, you know, you could buy a brand new HK MP5 as long as you know you went through all the NFA stuff. But come 86 and 87 and stuff. You can no longer buy a brand new made MP5. You would have to buy one that's made before that specific. I think it was May thirty first, nineteen eighty six. You know, um, so so that it it sets that dividing line that you can't go past. Can manufacturers still make replacement parts as long as they're not a serialized part? I mean, I, be- I believe yeah, parts are parts. But yeah. yeah, once that serialized receiver goes bad, though, I believe that's the yeah, end. Yeah, then of the you're line. you're out of luck. It's just like you know, a lot of the registered items on machine guns. It's the auto sear itself. Right. You know, it's not the gun. It's it's that little thing. So, but but to to bring us back to to the suppressor world, um, you know, we've all shot a lot suppressed. It's a ton of fun. Um, but if you've not shot suppressed before, for anyone who's, who's listening to the show or watching the show, you know, obviously there's, there's that expense to get into it, but if you want to shoot them and shoot a lot of cans for, uh, a, a very minimal price, there's an event coming up here, uh, not long after this episode airs, um, it's in Georgia and it's called CanCon. And Alan, tell us a little sure. more about CanCon. If you find yourself in Georgia in November, the 10th and 11th, um, come on out to uh, Richmond Hill and join us there. Um, there's going to be a ton of ma- uh, suppressor manufacturers out there. Um, sh- you want to shoot them? Shoot them. Uh, other people's ammo is the best kind of ammo to shoot. It's, <laughs> it's the most accurate for some reason. Um, no, but it's a great way to get in, get your hands on some guns. You're also going to be able to shoot some stuff that, you know, as we've talked about with GCA 68s or, or uh, uh, excuse me, 86. You know, if you want to get your hands on an MP5, I'm willing to bet there's going to be some MP5s out mm. there and M60s and 240s and you name it. The, the full autos and the suppressors kind of kind of go hand in hand. So, uh, yeah, come on out. It's a great time. Um, the swag bag is usually pretty cool. Um, different levels of tickets you can buy. Um, but uh, hit up the website. You can find everything you need on canconevent.com or you know, we've got information about it on gunbroker.com as well. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's really no more affordable way to go out and try a bunch of the different you know, suppressor stuff, even though the, the technology behind the suppressors haven't changed. Uh, you know, the, the cans themselves are different, you know, and there's different, you know, sometimes the, the, the baffles are manufactured a little different or this and that. And, and it's going to affect on different guns and different ammo, just how quiet it is. So before mm-hmm. you part with that $200 tax stamp, you know, go, go try some of these cans out and see for yourself what you like. And it's amazing the difference it makes. There's, uh, for example, there's a company that makes a can. It was, they were doing as part of a military contract for the HK416 that works really good on the HK416. Put it on an FN or any other, it's still pretty quiet, but there's a noticeable difference. So it's, you know, the, the design of the baffles and the way the gas flows is designed specifically for that rifle. It's way above my pay grade on the engineering side to know how they do it. But, yeah, if you want a chance to get your hands on a ton of different suppressed firearms, an event like this is the way to do it. 
Yeah. Now, be warned, once you shoot suppressed, you never want to go back. <laughs> yeah. So there, I'm sure there will also have plenty of suppressor manufacturers there that will be happy Ready to get to the process you. started for you. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, you said the best kind of ammo is someone else's ammo, and the best kind of suppressor is the one you don't have to clean. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so go on out to, to CanCon in Georgia, the 10th and 11th, um, and let us know in the comments what you guys thought of that event, for those of you who, who make it out there and check it out. Um, so with that, gentlemen, I appreciate you joining me around the table and, and talking suppressor history and NFA history and all sorts of uh, government intrusion that doesn't belong in Hopefully our lives. Hopefully this video becomes out of date and obsolete. <laughs> I hope so. That would be awesome. <laughs> the, the, this is the time. Call, write your senator, your congress critter, you know, whatever. Um, it's yeah, it's a bad law. Get, <laughs> get bad involved law. in the government. Join the American Suppressor Association. Not sponsored. Mm -hmm. Not a, you know, I, I'm a member of that. They're fighting for stuff. They've done great work. So anyway, uh, again, thanks, guys, for joining us around the table. Thank you to everyone watching and listening. If you're not subscribed to the show on your favorite platform, please do that. Uh, leave us some comments, a review. We'd really appreciate that. Um, and we appreciate you tuning in each and every week. And we will see you next week right here on the No Low Ballers podcast. <laughs> <laughs>